Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this episode. The Big Elixir is coming up in New Orleans, Louisiana on March 24th and 25th. This year, The Big Elixir will feature 12 fantastic talks focusing entirely on the learning, struggles, successes, and overall experiences of working with LiveView and the pedal stack. That is Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind CSS, AlpineJS, and LiveView. Listeners can save 20% on the conference tickets when they use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY2020. Visit TheBigElixir.com to register and for more information. ElixirConf 2020 is going hybrid. ElixirConf EU is taking place in London, England, or wherever you are for the virtual track, on the 9th and 10th of June, with training on the 6th through the 8th. For more information and to get your tickets, visit ElixirConf.eu. Closure D will be held in Berlin on the 11th of June 2022. Closure D is a closure conference with national and international speakers. Talks will be covering big data processing, asynchronous and reactive programming, closure script, and many other topics. The conference will be held in English. Tickets are on sale now, including supported tickets to help Closure D reach and support a more diverse audience by offering a contingent of three tickets to people from groups traditionally underrepresented in the closure community and in the wider tech community. If your company would like to sponsor Closure D, they have new packages lined up for recruitment and marketing and sponsorship, and Closure D is always happy to expand their network and grateful for support. Visit closured.de for more information and to register. Lambda Days 2022 has been pushed back until the 28th and 29th of July. Taking place in Krakow, Poland, and online, two Lambda Days tracks will be run as hybrid tracks, combining both an in-person and virtual experience. Lambda Ladies, Lambda Days wants you. For every Lambda Lady in your group, everyone gets 10% off the price, up to 50% off the entire order. Visit lambdadays.org to register and to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guest at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Johanathan Charvet. Johanathan, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hello, Proctor. Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Johanathan Charvet. I was born in France, as you probably guessed from my accent. But for the last 20 years, I've lived in uh, Israel. And I made all my career as a developer in Israel. It has been already 20 years. The most interesting thing that happened in my career as a developer was 10 years ago when my fifth child was born. I discovered Clojure. 
And before that, you know, I was just a programmer making money from programming. But since then, since I discovered Clojure, it has, programming has become my passion. So what did you do before Clojure? There's a wide range of experience. No, but, uh, no, 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 no. Don't remind me of this moments please please no i was doing c plus plus and then java and javascript i think javascript was the best thing that happened to me before closure in 2009 because i was able to express myself and not only pleasing the compiler in C++, I, I, I always had to please the compiler. And I, I, I am not a good uh, compiler pleaser. So how did Clojure get on your radar then? If you've done C++, you've done Java, you've done JavaScript, what put Clojure on your radar and got that spark there? Actually, it's, it's a funny story. It's a coincidence. I don't know if you believe in coincidence. But back then, I was commuting to work. I had every day uh, 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes train in the evening. And I was interested in lambda calculus and axiomatic set theory, the foundation of mathematics and the Russell paradox and the shaking in the world that happened in the beginning of the 20th century. And that's how I discovered LISP. Because Lisp, in a sense, is uh, an implementation of Lambda Calculus. And I started to listen to the lectures of structure and interpretation of computer program, SICP, from Sussman. You know, the, the, the lectures he gave at Stanford, I think, or another uh, university, where he put the, he wear the hat, the wizard hat, when he introduces the meta-circular evaluator. And I was amazed by that. You know, he was writing program on the blackboard. There were no computer and lots of parentheses and capital letter for every word. And I was, wow, Lambda Calculus is a thing. It's, it's not just a theory. It's, we can, but then I thought, okay, it's like a Greek. It's interesting as a language, but nobody speaks Greek. And uh, that's how I uh, left it for uh, months. And one day I come at work. Back then I was uh, working for Contera in Israel. And I see in the, one of my colleagues' screen, Lisp parentheses. And I say, wow, are, are you coding in Lisp? And this guy, his name was Stas. He said, no, no, it's not Lisp, it's closure. And it's pragmatic. It's not like Greek, it's like English. You, you, and he was building a scrapper, a scrapper in closure. And back then my, Last child, Yair, was born, my fifth child. And I had lots of time at night. And I asked, I don't know, maybe 500 questions on Stack Overflow about closure and getting points for questions, not for answers. And it was like a, you know, like a drug. Five points and another five points. And so I get into that, asking lots of questions and learning closure. And I liked it so much, so much, so much, so much. So that's it. That's how I discovered closure. So what was it like getting into Clojure? So you started picking up Clojure and getting interested, but to actually start learning Clojure, you're asking questions, you're, play, you're playing stuff. What was your transition into getting into working in Clojure? What, what it was very tough. It was difficult. And the things that helped me make it was, I came back to this guy, Stas, 
And I told him, give me a project in Clojure because I, I didn't know what to do with Clojure. And he said, okay, I, I'm working on my scrapper and I have a problem, uh, something uh, in performance issue, work on it. Now I had a real problem to fix. And I had to learn enough closure to solve the problem. I think that's the best way to learn uh, something. First to find a problem to solve and then learn something that helps you fixing the problem. Because learning just for learning, usually you're not motivated enough to go deeper. And actually I solved, uh, <laughs> I solved his, uh, he has a recursion because it was an HTML scrapper and he had a performance issue. And I solved the performance issue because it was in the recursion, he was passing the same nodes again and again. So I fixed it easily by memorizing the recursive call. And it was very performant, but when he deployed to production, it totally failed because the memorization had no limit, size limit. So the memory was increasingly going because of the memorization. So I broke production with my first closure commit. So that's, uh, that's where it started. <laughs> that's where the love story started with a failure. Did you manage to continue? closure at that point and being able to work on production style code or was that a break and you had to go do other things? I quit this company after a few months to create my startup or to be a founder in a startup. And the guy, the stats guy, the guy that let me discover closure, he, he asked me to make him a promise. You are going to use closure for your startup, right? I said, come on, come on. I can't. I'm going to hire junior developers. We don't have money. I will be the CTO and we will hire junior. They will never catch up in Clojure. And in no way, you must do it in Clojure. So at the end of the day, it was in 2013, January 2013, we did a compromise. We used Ruby on Rails for the backend, but Clojure script for the frontend. It was a, a, an audiology software. Most of the complexity was on the frontend. And I discovered something very interesting that for junior developers, closure is very natural, very, very natural. Um, this data oriented approach, the fact that value is everything is a value, that there is no mutation. It's simple. It's easy for them to grasp that, to grasp that, that as they have nothing to unlearn. And it worked. We built, uh, I think, Back then, we were the the product with the highest number of lines of closure script. We had 40k lines of closure script, and one of my colleagues gave a talk at at the Conj about building an audiometer in closure script. So you managed to get the taste of closure, a little bit of experience of closure, appreciate it, and continue on with it at least because you were able to have closure script on the front end. If you were working on the Ruby on Rails back end and you had to do some of that stuff yourself or just guide people on the Ruby and Rails backend, what did Clojure influence that way of working at in the early days? Because now yeah. you've got enough experience that you can say, I've got this mindset because you're writing a book on it of data-oriented programming. It sounds like I will apply this in as much as I can in whatever language as I can. But in the early days, how did, how did picking up Clojure and learning Clojure affect some of the things that even if you weren't doing it directly, you were guiding people in, to the approach in Ruby on Rails. Actually, it's, it's interesting because it just happened to us, not to me. I was preaching for the closure approach in the front end. And 
my colleagues, my junior, uh, the people I, I led, guided me and them to apply the same approach in the backend, no matter that it was in, in Ruby. So we were uh, creating as many maps as we could. We were avoiding the array function that mutates the array in, in Ruby, just because we were used to, to write code like that in the front end. And we benefit from the convenience of Ruby on Rails, you know, the way we manage mutation and access to the database, etc. But the little pieces of logic that we had to plug here and there, we wrote them in the closure way. We didn't call it data-oriented programming then. We just did it without giving a name. That sounds really nice because I've done some, I've done Ruby after doing closure and exposed, being exposed and Ruby on Rails as well. The Ruby stuff is easy to get away with and kind of go data oriented programming. I've noticed the Ruby on Rails can be a little bit more complicated, more because of the mindset and community about the Rails way and a data oriented programming doesn't necessarily align with the strict Rails way where you're like, look, we got a model to load the database, but then we're going to get out of model land and do some other stuff. And people are like, what do you mean get out of model land? Yeah, and, and so that's what, but if you're, you're, so your whole team was essentially on board with driving that immutability yeah, and we, everything we were, else. I think we were, we were not uh, enough experimented in Rails to be mind brushed. So we didn't stick to the Rails philosophy. We just used it where it was convenient. And when it was not convenient, we made it our way. And anyway, we had problems with the ORM and the active records magic that happened under the curtain and the performance issue that it caused here and there because we didn't know what the query that was generated. It just worked locally. And then when the number of rows were up, it, it broke on production and we had no idea why. So we learned that sometimes you have to, anyway, to put your hand in the dirt of SQL and write SQL query by hand. And the logic was not, was almost a crude backend. So we didn't need anything very, very special. So Rails was fine because we say that in Clojure, we, in the compromise between simplicity and convenience, we go for simplicity. But sometimes convenience is more important than simplicity. If, if you know that your application is simple and will stay simple, so there is no reason to prevent yourself from, from enjoying a bit of convenience. And that's what we did. You're working on this company. You've got the startup, the junior developers are picking up closure and they're applying it to Rails as well on some of this mindset. Where's the next step in the thinking of this going? Is this just a slow, continual evaluation? Are you hitting, pulling in other languages elsewhere? So, what yeah, is something, uh, something happened to me at a personal level. I was very interested in providing a way to see the JavaScript code that the Clojure compiler was emitting. It was in 2000 and 2015, I think, or something like that. And I was surprised that there were no way in the web to put a piece of Clojure script code and see the JavaScript code transpiled by the Clojure script. For sure, you could do that on your command line because that's the, what Clojure script does. But if you just want to see how something is translated, there is no way. And actually, I, I created a tool for that, a simple web page that runs a function called compile, 
And in the in text area, you put your closure script code. And in other text area, as you type, you get the transpilation result. It's the tool that has become Clips. And for me, it was my first foot into the open source world. So that's how I started to be interested into writing blog posts and using my tool. So I, I made it as a ClojureScript compiler, but then I say, right, it's ClojureScript and Clojure, it's almost the same. So in fact, it's a Clojure evaluator on the web. And there were no tools like that. So I made this tool and I used this tool in my blog post to illustrate every piece of information I was sharing with code snippets that are evaluated in the browser. And I got addicted to that. And I wrote lots, lots of articles about internals of closure, records, types, the difference, macros, macro tutorials, lots of stuff. And it was fun because every code I was sharing was evaluated and running as I write the, the article and as the reader read the articles. So for me, it was how I entered the open source world and clips got popular. Lots of uh, stars on GitHub. And again, it's, it feels great when you had stars. And I was on the, uh, my articles were on the front page of Hacker News, which feels great. <laughs> you know, you feel, wow, I'm popular. And then I, I made the tool work also with JavaScript. Why only closure? And then I discovered a whole world, a plethora of JavaScript evaluators. So I made it work with Python, with Ruby, with PHP, with Lisp, with Scheme, with BrainFrack, with lots of evaluators, and writing articles about those uh, technologies. So that's how I became a blogger and an open source contributor. And what the benefit was, you know, the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I, I had to dig into stuff about closure and how it works and the concepts behind closure and the uh, that's why I got interested into going into a deeper level of closure and programming understanding. How did that help your understanding of closure from the good practices, common conventions, idiomatic closure from the community perspective, some of that list perspective kind of knowledge of here's a better way to do this. Here's when you use macros. Here's when you don't. If you're blocking about all this stuff and you're learning it, I'm sure you're getting feedback from other people who are reading it. It's like, that is 95% on here's the stuff that you've missed. Or now that you've open sourced it, you people can see the code you're writing and you're not just like, hey, we're writing closure in closure script in a way. You get You get larger feedback of stuff that is actually working or not working? How did your thinking evolve? Yes, I, do, I don't think it, it really happened. And, and I don't think I got feedback from the community about the code snippets I was sharing in my articles. But what, what did help me a lot was me behaving as a code reviewer, as mentoring junior developers. And again, naturally, I was kind of inventing theories of programming. Like you should write small functions. You should give meaningful names. You should pass data. You should avoid mutation. You should make uh, generic functions. And I was, when I say inventing, it's not really inventing. It's more discovering. But it's what's amazing about closure. It's a language that teaches itself. And I, I don't know if you're going to quote this, but I never read a book about closure. I just used the language. And the language taught itself to me by, by using it. And the more you use it, the more you understand how you are supposed to use it. That's very interesting. You don't need a manual of 
Of course, if you read a good book, it, it makes things happen faster and it helps you intellectualize the process. But even without reading a book, just applying closure to problems, to data manipulation problems, or translating business problems into data manipulation problems and solving those data manipulation problems in closure makes you a data-oriented programmer without notice, noticing it. And I discovered the process realizing itself in me. And that's a source of joy because I was transformed by using the language. And I don't know if, how you consider yourself, but I'm not a good developer. I'm not good at technical interviews, at riddles where they ask you questions about implementing this or that. I always fail. But suddenly, using Clojure, I was able to solve the riddles that I was not able to solve in JavaScript or in C++. And the reason is not because I became smarter. The reason is that because I had the proper terms and the proper abstraction level to solve the problem. Any kind of data manipulation problem, if you can to solve it with for loop, is complicated. But if you think, okay, I have filter, I have reduce, I have frequencies, I have group by, I have sort, let me make a chain of processing. Usually, it works. And it feels great because I remember myself one year ago being, wow, how dumb I am, and suddenly, wow, how smart I am. And that feels, it's really, a, again, a source of joy. Seeing transformation occurring in myself was really a, a source of, of joy for me. And I was able to, to teach that to the junior developers I was uh, leading. That makes sense. And I've seen a little bit of that in my career as well, where doing the podcast, doing this other stuff, working in JavaScript, we had a project where it was like working with Ramda and we pulled in Ramda instead of Lodash and it same kind of thing, but Ramda tries to lean more functional, which I guess is closer to the Lodash, the, mm -hmm. the functional Lodash kind of stuff. But yeah. it was, here's how we split the, munch the data using map for filter, all this kind of stuff group by everything you said and working with others. But there is that kind of nice spot of like, I think I'm doing this right. And I'm looking at the data stuff, but are there other things where you can realize? And this is where I was wondering is, if you got feedback from the community about like going in and getting in your head and coming up with your own theories is great and you're testing them in the small, but I was wondering if you managed to get any of that feedback or mm -hmm. just even with some of that stuff about like, again, you put some, you're pushing yeah. a book out there now. So now you're really getting to test it in the large and you're going to get to test it. I didn't know if you had that career progression of, if it was just, here's the things I'm finding or you're getting some feedback about where, where those that theories is, hit yeah, That's a very interesting question. I never, I never thought about that. For me, I think when you are experienced enough in a domain, somehow you feel when what you say is bullshit or what you say is meaningful. I can make theories of everything and try to convince anybody that I'm right. But deep inside me, I know if I make, so sometimes when I make a theory and explain to a junior developer, it should be like this, ah, I feel that it doesn't sound true enough. But sometimes when I'm able to say, you know, like a musician, you, when you play the note properly, you don't need the audience to applaud. The musician knows that he made the right sound. 
and he made the right track and the right music. So in a sense, programming is much more like art than science. And sometimes it takes time for the audience to be able to, to catch up on the level of the artist. And sometimes artists are well-known only years after they pass away. But to me, when you invest yourself enough in a topic, in an art, there is something in you that you can use as a judge, whether you are precise, exact, or whether you're not in the zone. And the same for the book. And that's, that's the reason why I chose to write the book as a discussion. And the book is written between, most of the book is a discussion between an experienced data-oriented programmer and, a, and an object-oriented programmer. So there is Joe, the, the mentor, and there is Theo, the, the beginner. And they talk it to each other. And for me, it was really great in terms of creation process because it helped me to, okay, let's say I have an idea. This should be like this. You should always use maps. Okay, but then I have a voice inside me and say, why? Why is that? So instead of reformulating, in the book, I just write, you just use maps, and then the character will ask why. And then the first character will have to answer, and it's a much more dynamic approach. And in a sense, the reader is able to see the thinking process that I'm having. Of course, I'm after that, I reread and fix and make it flows better, but... Because in a sense, the reader will have the same process in his mind. Okay, I should use map, but why? But yes, but no, but this, but that. And for me, it was really, really uh, helpful, not only as a thinking process, but also a, as a deliverable. And by the end, if Joe was able to convince Theo by the end of the chapter, I knew th the argument was right. For me, that's the, the proof, if you want, that, that the theory is correct. And it might resonate with readers and it might not resonate, but like a piece of music. The piece of music is, is accurate. It might be a, a tube, it might, it might be a popular, it might be not so popular, but it's, it's correct. Before we move on to data-oriented programming and give a good, strong definition around it, if you're also doing clips and doing all these blog posts and actually looking into closure under the covers, it sounds like you're looking at a bunch of closure code as well. And like, how did Rich do this? How, how did wh whoever's on the core team do this? You start to get a feeling of that. Were there any yes. kind of insights that you just, as you picked up and you yes. wrote stuff that you realized, I see the, I like, I see the philosophy. This helped me clarify some of the thinking here yes. as well. Yes, 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 definitely. Definitely. And I would say two things. One thing is that the more I was digging into closure, the more I discovered how well they managed the trade-off between making a language that is beautiful and having a pragmatic language. They made lots of small compromise in terms of beauty of the language to make it practical. For example, the fact that you can redefine a variable. It shouldn't be like this in a language. You define a variable, that's it, period, right? You should not redefine, a, you should not assign again a variable. Like in JavaScript, you have const, right? It feels natural, that's how it should be. Why closure allows you to redefine a variable? Why would you define, it, it never happens in your code that you write, in closure code that you write def a1, and somewhere in the code you rewrite def a2, right? It never happens. So I ask myself, why do they allow that? 
You know what is the answer? The answer is to support the REPL. Because in the REPL, you redefine again and again the same variable and the same functions. And if, and actually in JavaScript, it's terrible when you work in the browser, in the console, in the browser console, if you make a, a variable const, you cannot redefine it. You cannot work in the REPL, actually. You write const a equals one in the REPL, not in your code that you, in the console. You cannot, again, write a equals two, but sometimes you need that when you are not writing production code, just playing with code. And in Clojure, they make no, they make no difference. They say we are REPL friendly first. Every piece of the language should first run properly in the REPL. And that's a compromise. And you can find lots, lots of examples. And it's a really a sense, again, it's a sense of art, finding the, the, the right compromise between pragmatism and, and beauty. So that, that was the first insight I got when I digged into the, the implementation or the interface that the language was providing. The second one was that, in fact, the big story about Clojure is not about Lisp, is not about the parentheses, is not, is not about the REPL, is not about the JVM. It's really, it, I mean, it's a big story, but the uniqueness of Clojure that you cannot find, and I think even until 2022, is the way it approaches data. So that was the second insight. And that leads us into the topic of your and name of the book is data-oriented programming. So I look at that and I see this and I see some of your blog posts. I'm like, that's just functional programming or good functional programming where you may or may not have functions as first-class citizens, but functions over data wherever you can, small immutable values, and treating data as something to be manipulated and transformed as a pipeline. But you call out, you're like, no, 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 data-oriented programming is different than functional programming, and it needs right. its own concept. Can you elaborate on what data-oriented yes. programming is, as you are the person now defining this term? Exactly. Okay. Great question. First of all, let me tell you something interesting. If you were to Google the term data-oriented programming before January 2021, you know how many results Google will give you? Give me a guess. I think it's probably very none, other than probably some of the stuff maybe in the Clojure community and maybe your stuff in some of the Clojure blog posts. Exactly. Zero. Zero. It's hard to find a term where Google has nothing to say about it. It's When I mean zero, I, when I say zero, I mean zero. When you dig a bit more, you find that when Richiki announced Clojure, I'm not sure even if it's Richiki, there is one blog post in the Clojure website that tries to explain the value of Clojure. They say it's a data-oriented language. Another mention in, in the book, The Joy of Clojure, there is a chapter about how Clojure embraces data-oriented. But when you dig even more, you find that in 2000, Someone called Eugene something invented the term data-oriented programming. That's the first mention of the term data-oriented programming. And it was in the context of being able to create kind of code from XML specification in Java. So I say, wow, that's, that's amazing. There is a term that sounds familiar to everybody, but is not covered. 
So that's a great opportunity for me to be the, for, in terms of marketing, that's a great opportunity. I got so enthusiastic that I decided to write a Wikipedia article about data and programming. I was like, wow, I'm going to be the, the writer of a Wikipedia article. But then you know what happened? They rejected. Because in order for, for a topic to be mentioned in a Wikipedia article, it has to be quoted by secondary sources. So there, there needs to be sources that are not about your topic, that mention your topic. And there are no official material about any topic that mentions data and programming yet. So my article was rejected. So that's just a, a little background. Now to your question, what's the big difference? In fact, if you listen to the talks from Rich Hickey, he mentions two things that should be avoided in programming. One is object, what he calls place-oriented programming and mutations. And here, functional programming and data-oriented programming is the same. But he has another big fight. It's about the names. The fact that when we model facts with data, each piece of data should have a name. And when I say a name, I don't mean a name of a variable. I mean a name of a field inside a record. And here is fighting against not only Java, but also against Haskell and Hocamel, all the statically typed programming languages. And that's the big, big difference between data-oriented programming and functional programming, is how we represent information. Do we use algebraic data types or custom types for each piece of data? Or do we use generic types? like enclosure where we have this idiom, just use maps. So that's the big difference between data-oriented programming and functional programming. That makes sense. And I think where I'm coming from is playing with some Haskell, I've done a little Elm, watching Clojure over the years, even if I wasn't doing it until recently, having done Erlang, which is yet another dynamic language. It's got the actor models, but again, it's still data-oriented. So inside your actors, in a lot of cases, you're doing your straight transformations or you're sending messages as data back and forth between the processes. So you're sending, again, you're still very focused on the data. There are side effects because of message passing, but again, it's same way yeah. you communicate through HTTP or other kinds of things. You're still... What is the data for this message? Does it have everything? Does it have extra stuff? Well, if it has extra stuff, I may not care. I just destructure the stuff I kind of want to. And from that experience, that lines up a lot with functional programming in the sense, which is why I wanted to dig into a little bit for anybody else there of why data-oriented programming. So I guess to cover the ML type system families and the strongly statically typed kind of stuff. You mentioned you were explaining in the book, why maps? Why maps and where do the maps fit in versus are there cases where it does make sense to couple the spec and the data together, which you talk about separating in data-oriented programming, the spec of the data and the data itself lives separately in the ML family languages, we kind of tie them together. Yes. Are there places where you see both tied together making sense and the rationalization of 
when you want to keep those as separate as possible for as long as possible, in a sense. Okay. So first of all, I think that we have answered the first question, what is the difference? Now you are asking why the OP approach is better or when is it more appropriate than the, the statically typed approach, right? That's the question. Yes. I think most of the people, even because even in Haskell, they would say, yeah, I think about my data. I just structure my data with types and records and it's still data, but I am strongly defining it. Whereas the data oriented programming is more dynamically typed. It sounds like for most of the, most of the time. So yes. Yes. So I think in order to, to answer this question, we have to separate between convenience tooling and what's right. And of course, after you spec, sorry, after you type your data, it's very convenient to access a field in a record that is typed. You get lots of help from the IDE. You get the compiler that checks at, at compile time that you didn't make a mistake. You get auto-completion. You get a lot of stuff. So let's put that away for a moment and focus not on tooling and convenience, but in another aspect, in the what happens when your code runs after you have written it, not the writing process, when the code runs, what happened? And again, I'm going to quote or paraphrase Rich Hickey. He has this great sentence when he says, in statically typed language, languages, name names compile away. The fact that in a record, let's say a person, it has a first name, a last name, and a birth date, the fact that first name is called first name, this information is, it compiles away. It's not available in the runtime once the program has been compiled. It's just an offset, zero, one, two. And that's a tragedy. That's really a tragedy because in information, the names you give to fields are an inherent part of the information. The fact that it's the first name and not the last name, it's crucial. It's essential. And it's not just a tuple. A record is not just a tuple separated by offset. It's not a, you can represent for optimization reason. You can decide that a person will be represented as a list and you will know that the first element of the list is the first name. The second one is the la last name and the third one is the date. You can do that. And you might do that for performance reason, but when you think about what should happen in terms of correctness, you need the information about the name. The field, it's a tragedy to get rid of field names. Put a little bit of drama, but to me, that's, that's the essence of, of the fight, of the, what's at stake. Do we need, do we need names or name as just a creation artifact? Do we need to have names when the programs run or don't we need to have names? For example, variables you don't need. The fact that you call the variable A or my ID because it was convenient, it's an information you want to convey to other developers, what's the meaning of this piece? It's not important when the program runs. So that, it's okay that it compiles away. And, you know, in JavaScript, there are many uh, uglifier and optimizer that renames variables because who cares? But the names inside the records, it's an essential part of the information. It's, just, it's not just something that happened during the creation process. 
It's something that should be there always. I think that makes sense because, and I'm going to go with some of the Elm I've played with, is it may kind of sort of get compiled away, but in one case that you can have records in Elms that essentially are strongly typed, but they still are extensible. And you can say, hey, this is a record. It looks like a map kind of a record, but it's got these three fields in it that make it a person, a first name, a last name, birth date. There may be other stuff in there, but those record fields that say, again, the first, last, and birth date may be compiled away under the covers, but in the, in one way, you can think of it as an as a minimal spec around an open set, and the Elm community may shoot me down for this, but this is, again, kind of my thinking on this, because you have extensible record, which you're like, you have this thing, there can be other stuff in it too, but... It almost seems like in that case, there are some cases where you can still have a strongly typed set of data that is open for extension and allows multiple things where those fields could be kept around and not compiled away at runtime. So it doesn't sound like it's necessarily antagonistic to strongly typed languages. It's more about how some of these strongly typed languages are implemented then. Yes. So again, not again, let me clarify something. One of the things that I like about the way the book is written is that it does not say anything about languages. It doesn't say you should use a dynamically typed language or you should use a statically typed language. It says what what features of the language constructs you should use when you model data. And if there are languages like TypeScript that allows you to cut the cake and have it too, being able to spec and being extensible and allowing yourself to rename stuff, fine, that's you're doing data and programming. What we don't want is to, to model data with rigid data structures where the name compile away. And then when you need to convert this data over the wire to serialize on JSON, you need reflection, for example. This we want to avoid. You want to use that that's exactly my hope for the book. My hope is that people will stay in their programming language and will find the best constructs to implement the approach without having to switch to another programming language. And I, I don't think that Clojure nailed it down to the end. For example, the fact that in Clojure we have data validation and schema, lang- schema languages only for the last couple of years and the fact that it has not yet being nailed down to the end, we have Mali, we have Closure Spect, we have lots of stuff, and the tooling is not there, it's a problem. It's a problem. So depending on what kind of problem you want to solve, you might say, okay, here I, the convenience is more important than making it right, and I need help from my IDEs. In my case, I need help from my IDEs. So even if you need help from your IDEs, you need to remember or to find the best way to represent data in a flexible way. And that's really what I'm aiming at. That makes sense. And I want to make sure that we explained it well enough because I am on chapter 12-ish of the book, so I've made a good chunk of the way. So there may be some other stuff I have yet to get in the early access version of the book. And there may be a, another chapter. I don't know if that if 14 or 15 or whatever is the last chapter. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many are in the copy that I was looking at. But essentially, it's wanted to call out that 
if you're a Haskeller or you're some of these others in a strongly typed language, it's not necessarily, this doesn't apply to you. It's, as you said, there are ways to have your cake and eat it too, where you can get the spec, you can get the data, and if they can combine well, cool. Which seems to be, again, what Mali and Clojure and Clojure spec and things are doing, where it's like, even Jason schema, as you use in the book, it's like, here are the parts that are there. There can be stuff that's outside of that as well. If you want to take, st- if your web request sends a whole bunch of other payloads in, a bunch of extra headers, well, these are the headers we need. This is the spec, but it can be open and extensible. So I wanted to make sure that as we talk about this, we cover it kind of across the functional yes. programming language spectrum as well, too. Yes, I, I, I like the way you, you framed it. I totally agree. So as you push through this book and you're formulating this and you're having your concepts, were there any realizations that you kind of knew and you felt truthy? But as you wrote the book and you said you started having these conversations with yourself as the two different characters, were there any other things that you're like, oh, I kind of knew that, but I didn't actually know that? What, what were some of those big, like, yes. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of them. So first of all, let me mention Christophe Grand. You know Christophe? No, I have him. If we're talking about data-oriented programming and thinking about data, his Conway's Game of Life that's in his programming closure book is one of those big things that just, when I saw that, I was like, wow, how you look at the data does change a lot of stuff. So I am familiar with him. I haven't got to meet him or interview him yet. So I am lucky enough to be French. And he is French and automatically it created a, a chemistry between the two of us when we met a couple of years ago at Closure X in London. And he was uh, gentle enough to spare some time with me over Slack and uh, remote. Uh, he's in, in France, in Saint-Étienne, and I am in Jerusalem. And we had a couple of meetings. And together we were able to distill the principles of data-oriented programming. And he helped me really structure it. What is it in closure that it's a unique approach? So that was my first aha moment. And if we want, if you want, we can go quickly over the principles that just to. Yeah, let's do it. So people, we can at least tease the principles and if we don't get to them in depth. Yeah. Okay. So the first principle is exactly like in functional programming is that we want to separate between code and data. Actually, the, before the first principle, I think the meta principle is that data is a first class citizen. That's, if I would need to summarize data oriented programming in one sentence, I would say data is a first class citizen. Like in functional programming, functions as first class citizen, first class citizen, in data oriented programming, data is first class citizen. So if data is first class citizen, it should be separated from code. Like in functional programming, is functional programming, is functions are first class citizens, they should be separated from data. So it's the same principles, but with a different angle. So that's principle number one. Principle number two is that, okay, how am I going to represent data? As the answer is, you should use generic data structures. We talked about a couple of minutes ago. And principle number three is that if data is a first class citizen, it should be treated like numbers so the, in the, and strings in the same way that it doesn't make sense to have strings that are mutable in any programming language. It doesn't make sense to mutate data. So that was the three principles that 
Christoph helped me formulate in a succinct and clear way. And also we thought about the order, which principle should come first. And I think that the, it makes it flow well. Separate code from data, use generic data structure to represent data, never mutate data. And those principles, again, sound a lot like functional programming because you said the data as first class mirrors the functions as close. It's like the opposite side of the coin of the same coin yes. where functions first class. Well, that means data is too. What other realizations went off as the light bulb moment that you kind of had that gut feel about, but you weren't, you just weren't sure. So, so one of my mentor at Manning, who is a famous author in Java, he said, okay, great. If what you need to do is just calculation, math, mathematics, that's fine to never mutate data. But when you need to do state management, how can you do that? It's going to be messy. You are going to keep references, to keep copying, to keep this, to keep that. So he really pushed me to write a chapter about state management with immutable data. And a realization I had was that it's not that eh, it could work. Actually, that's exactly the problem that we want to solve. Immutable data is the best way to manage state. That was a big one for me. It's not that immutable data is fine for mathematics and eh, for state management, it's okay. No, that's the best way to manage state. So I guess the next question is data, all the things, functions over data, like as a transformation pipeline. I know in Eric Norman's book, Rocking Simplicity, it was actions, calculations, and data, and try and even take the actions out and have the actions be data. So you need to send an email. Well, you don't send an email. You make a data of the email to be sent, and some outside system yeah. does it. Seems similar to the IO stuff in Haskell, where it's like, nope, you're going to set up this thing, and then something else is going to... You, you don't worry about it necessarily at that point when you do it but something else will take care of firing the side effects. Elm has something similar with updating events and commands and things like that. How far do you push data-oriented programming? Is there a limit there? Yes, yes, there is a limit. I think that what you mentioned, I would call it data-driven programming. And it's the capability of expressing behavior with data. What I'm talking about is not that. is representing data as data. The way you are going to implement the transformation, the business rules and the logic, it's a totally different concern. Okay. And I, yeah, I wasn't sure if data oriented became into data driven kind of stuff where it becomes like in the closure world a lot, it's the homo iconicity kind of stuff where code is data, data is code. You're not necessarily always evaluating yes. stuff, but it's whatever we can represent as data, the more we can move from even calculations yes. into data as well. Yes, yes, yes. I totally agree, but it's not what the book talks about. I, I think it's not data-oriented programming. It's, it's, it's valuable, it's great, it's amazing, it should be done. I totally agree. Great, great, check, check, check. But what data-oriented programming is about is how you represent data, know how you organize your code. And that's also at a more philosophical level, the, the difference between data-oriented programming and functional programming. So I mentioned one difference, one 
disagreement about how we represent data, but uh, on a deeper level is what questions are we asking? And I don't think that functional programming has a take about how, you sh how we should represent data. And when I say data, I mean data that happens in the world, facts. I don't think functional programming has to say something about that. It has to say a lot about how you write your code, how you write generic state machine programs that receive data as input, yes. But data programming asks a different question. How should we represent facts that happens in the world? That makes sense. And I, I can see where I was conflating the two of data-oriented. It's like, oh, nope. Even when you're data-driven, that's still data, which you can still take a data-oriented approach and apply it to there, it would seem, because then you're, it's about how do you structure yes. that data as well. Yes, and you could use classes there. You could say, when I have an action where the fields are totally known in advance and there is no chance to have different fields, I prefer to choose to use a class. And I don't know what I would have to say about that. I didn't stick about that, but I think it's a different question. And the answer might be different. Maybe there it, it makes more sense to use specific types. Or maybe generic types are better. I don't know. It's a different question. I'm not talking about what data structure should we use in our program. That's not the question that interests me. The question that interests me is how should we represent data that exist before we write our programs? The actions that Eric mentioned in his book, they don't exist before you write your program. They are created by your program. That's totally different. In an information system, you manipulate data that exists before your program, in the database, in the world, whatever. So this kind of data, that's what interests me in the book. And the claim is that you should use generic that immutable data structures to represent this kind of data. That makes sense. And as I said, it's probably me conflating it because of the FP's bent bend to it, where it's like, ring middleware. We represent your HTTP request as data now, and you can add and you can remove, right. and it's still an open thing, but it's data, and it's data, yes. and that kind of just like, the data-oriented starts to bleed into a data-driven sometimes, it feels like. That's, that's why I was kind right. of confl yes. probably conflating the two. Yes, it conflicts. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and I'm also getting confused, and a lot of people ask me, and uh, I write a short blog post called Three Data Star Paradigms. Number one is data-driven programming, we just talked about. Number two is data-oriented programming. And there is another one, even more confusing, called data-oriented design which has nothing to do with what we talk about, is, is, a per, is solving performance issues. What's the most efficient way to represent data, mostly in, game, in games, in order to make the program run fast? And even if it, it's not the, the natural way to represent data, when you have to compromise on performance, you would represent your data in a non-natural way to make your code, your game run faster. And unfortunately, you know, naming is hard. And it's hard. I have nothing to say more about that. Are there any things that, as functional programmers who listen to this podcast, when we try and sell data-oriented programming, we should try and leave out of the conversation from the functional programming side to make the data-oriented side more clear? Yes. So we, we touched about that a bit before. In places where you use data to represent 
to describe code behavior, that other programmer has nothing to say about that. So that's that's one thing. The way you compose your functions, if you use high order functions or whatever, the patterns that you use, also, that other program has nothing to say about that. When you come to represent data and you realize that you need both data itself and the schema about the data that you're going to manipulate, then data on the program has a lot to say about that. Because you need you need the two. You need the schema and you need the data. And data on the program would say, okay, first of all, do you need the schema everywhere? Probably not. At the system boundaries, you need the schema. You know, if you, you implement an HTTP server and the client sends you an invalid data, you need to tell them data is invalid. So you need to check that data is valid. You don't want to run the code assuming that data is valid and fails down the stack and send, uh, you know, A is not defined. No, that has nothing to do with data-oriented programming. So you need to validate the input to your system, that basics. Now the question is how you are going to do that. And you could pretend to take it for granted if you represent the request payload with the static types. And if the parsing fails, you will get the error for free. But that other program would say, no, keep moving with generic maps and specify your schema separately from the map and use the functions that receives as an input data and schema and returns true or false if the data is valid or not and provide explanation about what fails. And you could use Mali if you're in closure, but if you're not in closure, you could use something as simple as JSON schema, which has great support in every programming language. So you have your JSON schema specifying the request. You benefit, you have, uh, you can generate Swagger for free from JSON schema. And you, you just need to add a middleware that checks for every request that the data is conformed to the schema. It's, I think in that case, it's almost as simple, as convenient, I would say. In fact, I think it's even more convenient because if you need to generate Swagger from class definitions, it requires something much more complicated, reflection, whatever, versus generating a Swagger JSON from a JSON schema. It's, it's straightforward. It's solved already. So does it answer your question? Mostly. Is there any other functional programming stuff that should be set aside when advocating? Because you use a lot of higher order functions in your book of like the map filter, mm. reduce, group by, sort, all that kind of stuff. Is there any other stuff that we should just, if we're selling it? Yes, yes. I think I know I'm going to, I'm going to answer in the opposite direction. Once you model, once you use the same data types, generic data types everywhere, you are able to leverage every small function that you write. Once you write a custom data manipulation function, let's say uh, distinct by, right? There is no such thing in closure. A function that receives a sequence and returns unique elements in the sequence, but when you provide how to compare elements, not by comparing just by equality. For example, you would have rec records and you would check a field to, to decide if two records are the same. So there is no function distinct by. It takes five lines of closure code to write distinct by. In Lodash, it's maybe seven lines, and in any language, it's less than 10 lines. So once you have written this function, 
if you use the data oriented program approach, you could use this thing by on every array of records. I don't think it's the case. I'm not sure, but I don't think it's as easy if you use specific types. You might need to do some tricks in order to have this thing by work fine on every type. I'm not sure, but it will be a bit, a bit less natural. And I just gave that as an, as an example. So you probably know the quote from uh, Alan Perlis. It's better to have uh, 100 functions on one data types instead of 10 functions of 10 data types. That's the holy grail of data content programming because any piece of data is represented by maps and arrays. And you can leverage any function from Lodash, Ramda, Clojure, Funk tools, Ether tools in Python, Ruby, whatever. And you get all of this for free, JSON serialization, optimization, merge, deep merge, merge by, everything you get, you benefit from that for free. So that's an invitation to leverage more and more and to write small functions and generic function that could be reused everywhere. So it, I think it fits in the functional programming approach. Sounds great. We're coming up on time. Is there anything we haven't covered about data-oriented programming or just you in general and other things that you're working on that we haven't covered that we think we should make mention to before we start to wrap up? Yeah, let me mention GraphQL. Where I work here, I made a project using GraphQL. And on the paper, it sounds great because it provides you uh, automatic documentation. It let clients fetch data as they want. You're probably, you, pro you have probably seen the Star Wars uh, demo of GraphQL, where you can write a query that fetches all the movies where this hero appears and uh, building a graph query that the server never thought about that and giving this power to the client. So on the paper, it's great. But I don't think it fits in the data-oriented programming approach. And very quickly, you encounter the rigidity of types. And that's an unavoidable problem. There are issues open on GraphQL spec for allowing union types as input. It's not supported yet by GraphQL. So you cannot write a query that receives as an input in the field, either a number or a string. It's impossible to write that in GraphQL. And it it makes sense that it's impossible because you want something very rigid and, and the, all the tooling will break. And I think that's another example of how targeting convenience first causes issues. Trying to please developers and making great tools, it works well when you start. We, when we did the POC for the project, it was fine because we didn't have a case where a field could be either a string or a number. But then we wanted to build a rule system where you could specify, I'm expecting this property of, of, of I'm expecting a property of having a value. And you don't know in advance what is the type of the property. You want to be generic and you don't care if it's a Boolean or a string. The backend don't care. The database don't care. Nobody cares. But you cannot express that in GraphQL because it's too rigid. And I'm using this as an example of the urge for genericity and flexibility. So I think, I don't think that closure has nailed it done already. I think that one of the questions that I left open in the book is great, but what do we do in terms of tooling? 
I want my ID to help me. I don't have an answer in 2022. It has not yet solved. And I really hope that a language will come that will be designed, that will take closure insights about data, and, but that will build the language to embrace that even more. And, and maybe leave out a bit the REPL, the list, the macro. We'll not focus on that. We'll focus only on making it both convenient and simple to represent and manipulate data. And I, I'm really looking forward for the next language to, to come and embrace data-oriented programming principles. We've talked about your book. We've been kind of talking about it all time, so we don't necessarily need to plug it. But is there anything else that you want to plug that you're working on that you want to let people know about or any call to actions for people yes. that you want to? Yes, yes. Yes, I want something. My daughter is uh, going to be 18, my second daughter, and to uh, graduate from high school. And here in Israel, boys go to the army and daughters could choose either army or national service. And she's looking for a place to volunteer for two years. And to me, it looks like it's, it's similar to open source. Making an open source project is like volunteering. When I started back in 2017 with clips and blogging, I had no idea where it would lead. I was just excited by having people reading my stuff. And I never thought about monetization. I didn't put ad on my blog. I could, but I didn't. And I'm not a businessman. I didn't know how to make money. And the real reason was because my real motivation was not to make money. It was to be excited. But I think it pays off no matter how. In ways, life is stronger than you. If you follow your vision and the things that you really like, for me it was blogging, open source, writing a book, somehow it gets back to you. And, and now I think the book is, although it's only on early access program, it's not yet real, but it's, it has been sell, selling very well. And to me, it's kind of a financial compensation of all the endeavor I had during the, all the years where money was not important at all. And even today, the reason I wrote a book was not, is not to make money, definitely. But somehow I think that something I learned, if you stick to, to your vision for, let's say, 10 years, at some point it will compensate itself in ways that you, you cannot imagine in advance. You need something, uh, I think in English it's called the grit. It's a, a skill, an emotional skill that leaders have that makes you capable of keep moving even when it seems that it doesn't go well. For some reason, you have something in you that says again and again and again and again. And I'm quite sure that it pays off. I think the number is 10 years. If you're able to keep with something that you really believe in, like your podcast, your show, I don't know, maybe you can share how long, how long that it takes to you to stay grounded and committed to your vision until it pays off in ways that I'm sure you didn't expect when you started the, your journey. I think just having these conversations are something that I was hoping for, but the just the vast amount of conversations that I think have paid off just being able to, as having the conversation with you and being able to feel these questions and get better understanding of this idea helps me clarify my thinking too and understand and push back of like, I've got some ideas that I think hold true. But again, having these conversations also helps challenge them too, where it's like, okay, well, 
where is the difference between a strong type system and a dynamic type system and data oriented on both and things like that. And okay, maybe data oriented view makes the case for a dynamic one and then goes back and like, okay, what's the case for a statically typed, strongly typed one? And for me, it's these conversations of helping to clarify the thinking is the primary goal. And as you said, yeah, but this, yeah, that's a great answer. But this, I think you, it's probably something that you expected and you experienced since the first show. A little bit. I, I think what I didn't expect was being able to do this for as many episodes and have, and then people actually listen to it. Given the size of the internet, and then also given the size of the functional programming community, which is small, but still pretty big, to have people who are like, oh, yeah, your podcast, I've listened to it, and that actually helped me learn some of this stuff kind of stuff. Like those kinds of things. Yes. And how do you manage when you have a crisis? Like I'm going to stop the show. It will never work. Da da da. I'm bringing it back now. So I'm hope I'm, I'm just going to phrase it as I'm going to pause it for a while while I can just get stuff back. And even it was always, it was always in the back of my mind since starting this up again, when I knew I didn't have enough time and was feeling burned out on other stuff. It's like, nope, at some point I will get back into doing the podcast. And I just kind of like, do it. So again, I don't know. I, I completely agree with you that you all see things that you never had the chance. You thought you wouldn't have had the chance to do again here in the North Texas area of the United States. I'm talking with you over a call over in Israel. And so it's being able to talk to people yeah. that I would not necessarily have even gotten to bump into. Yes, is, is just amazing. an amazing gift. Yes. Yes. He's a, I have a friend that calls it our shared humanity. And it's a, it's a really, uh, again, a source of, of joy when you feel that with someone that totally different culture, different country, different time zone. And I say that's something the COVID reminds us. I'm talking with people from Serbia and the first question they ask, how COVID is doing in Israel? How is it doing there? And automatically it creates a connection between, between us. And if there is one thing, COVID caused lots of problems, but if there is one thing good that we could put on the COVID, is that it has reminded us how, about our shared humanity. Uh, and that's a, a blessing to to remember that. And it sounds like we're at, we're at our time and we're wrapping up, but is there any other projects that we didn't mention or anything else that you want to just point people to before we wrap up? Yes, I'm doing a refresh of clips. I've released something new uh, a week ago. So clips is, is used by lots of bloggers to have them in their uh, blogs, but they didn't, there was not a real way to share a code snippet without hosting it. And I've made a tool for that where there is a static page where you create your code and the code is kept in as a URL parameter. And then you can share it on Twitter or Slack. And, and instead of asking questions with code that doesn't run, you can share a snippet and the code is evaluated in the browser of the folk that you send the, the snippet to. So I'm looking forward to the community to use this more and more. And it's all, everything runs in the browser. There is no server. It's just front end. The URL keeps the, the, the source code and it works in the closure, JavaScript, Python, Ruby, BrainFuck, C++, Scheme, Lua, HTML, whatever. Go, even go. Sounds great. So where can people find you and follow along with you? We'll get the link to the book on Manning 
for people, but where can people find and follow you? And the best place is on Twitter. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm going to make a half a joke. I'm not yet very popular. I'm hoping to become popular and have uh, thousands of Ks of followers, but it's not the case yet. So if you reach out to me and send me a direct message on Twitter, I will answer. I hope it will not be the case in a year where the book is a bestseller and everybody tries to reach out and I'm not available. But for the moment, I'm uh, available. Another thing I'd like to mention, if you read the book and you, you want to pitch the concept at your company and convince other people to use the data-oriented programming approach, I can help. You can hire me for giving uh, workshops or presentations. And I, I've done that in several companies and I can help convincing internally that it's a good approach that you could leverage in many programming languages. Sounds great. And then I'll get your Twitter links in the book page and your website added to the show notes so people can track you down, follow more, get in contact with you. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for Logo. And once again, thank you, Jonathan, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you, getting a better understanding and distinction of data-oriented programming and data-driven programming and things like that and where the line is and being able to hopefully share this with others as I come across this and help propagate these ideas because it sounds real solid to me and having this conversation with you has helped me. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for uh, having me. It was really a pleasure to connect with you at a personal level. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.